As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Live Well Anyway. I'm your host, Mackenzie Coppa, and on this podcast, we focus on wellness, beauty, style, planning, and life. Basically, life is messy, and here we learn to live well anyway. So join me on this journey as we figure it out together, and just to get us started, I'll go first. And today, you guys, this episode, I feel very exposed because I'm having on my friend and writing coach, and we're exposing the fact that I have been working on a book. Now, don't get excited. It's not been picked up or anything. It's very much in the early stages, but I am working on writing it, and that all comes out in today's episode. I feel incredibly naked before you to admit that this is a project that I have been working on. But I have had some of you be interested in the past, and so I have been working on a both heartfelt and humorous memoir of sorts of the last few years. And so it basically picks up from the day that I fled my marriage and then talks about all the crazy experiences and everything that we have been through since then. And I am actually going to be reading one of the chapters on today's episode at the end after I've interviewed Joy Agritch Reed, who, by the way, I should mention her name, is Joy Agritch Reed on the episode today of Punchline Agency, which is my new speaking agency. If you want to hire me, contact Punchline. But Anyway, I am very excited to be having her on. So after I chat with her, I'm actually reading a chapter all about my dating experiences over the last few years. So that is after today's interview. And then I'm also actually reading a chapter from her new book that is based on the writing cohort that I was in with her back in March. It is called Getting to the Publishing Punchline. We talk about it in this episode. It's this amazing guide that helps you to actually write a book proposal. And it is so down to earth. It is so specific. It really gets you where you need to go and answers all of your questions about writing a book proposal, which I really had no clue about. It was the biggest thing that had been hanging me up for years. And to have her guidance was just exactly what I'd been looking for. I didn't even know where to look for the information I needed. And she put it all together because she's an agent, a literary and a speaking agent. And so she knows what is going to work and what you need to include. And it was beyond helpful. So she has this amazing new book out that you can find on Amazon. And I am going to read a chapter from it at the end 
end of this episode. So those are things to look forward to after we chat in our little interview. But before we get there, I also want to mention that we have some really fun things going on in Patreon. It has been so fun to connect with these ladies lately. We are upping the ante in the Living Well Anyway. I've issued some challenges for the month of October to really get us living well anyway, to help us step into that and have a little bit more specificity and what that can look like. So if you feel like you are tired of just kind of getting by and you want to give a little bit more direction to your days, you want to do a little bit more planning and preparing for what you're doing, have a little bit more focus on how you are taking care of yourself and all those sorts of things, you're going to want to come over and join us in Patreon because we are doing it together as a community. We are offering accountability and encouragement, and I help walk you through all those steps. I do daily lives where we talk about what planning looks like and how to do that and how to establish routines and how to keep going with them even when it doesn't feel like they are necessarily working and how to iterate them so that you can make them work better for your life and then we're also talking about like real nitty gritty stuff like we recently did a show all about feminine hygiene products and it was so much fun I know that doesn't sound like a fun episode but we had a blast because I'm a weirdo and I will just go ahead and say whatever it is on my mind and get super super real so if you want a little bit of that TMI and you want like my best suggestions and the behind the scenes and all of that that happens with the Live Well Anyway platform, then you're going to want to come and join this community. It's called Live Well Together on Patreon. So you go to patreon.com slash livewelltogether and you just get in there with us and you join the conversations and you tell us how you are living well anyway, even when life is crazy and messy and hard. And we all work together to encourage each other. We really want you to be a part of it. It is such an open arms community and we just have a whole lot of fun. So come over there and join us in Patreon, patreon.com slash live well together. It's a good time. You can get in for just $5 a month and be able to partake in all of those daily lives that I do. I mean, that's less than like a cup of coffee at Starbucks for daily fun and goodness and community. You really can't beat that. So come over and join us, patreon.com slash live well together. All right, without further ado, let's get on with this episode with Joy Agrich Reed. Welcome back, Joy. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you back. I mean, nothing at all has happened like since no. the last time I had you on the nothing. show. You didn't like have a secret baby or anything in Paris. <laughs> which we did forget. Did I tell you last time or was yes, it still? Yes, we actually we back? we talked about, you know, you had you had come out with the baby that you were pregnant. <laughs> and so we actually talked about like your plans to have the baby. But you yes, hadn't because had you did all yet. you did all your home births and you were totally inspiring to me. I'm like, she's done this this many times. I can do it. You can do birth. it. Yeah, I did it. You did it. Yes. And we have children with the same name, too. Emerson. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What's your what's the middle name? Elizabeth Faith is a girl. Elizabeth Faith. Um that, wow, we give our kids a lot of <laughs> Emerson, Gabriel. I had to think, I was like, I know he has two too, but yeah. what are they? <laughs> Emerson, Gab- Gabriel, Vaughn Reed, a poor kid. Yeah. He's filling out forms for nine hours. I know. 
how long does it take her to write her name? Um, you know, she's, she's pretty eloquent with it. She started yeah. holding a pen when she was like, you know, one, but it's even when I'm filling out forms and I have to explain to people like, no, there's two middle initials. And that always throws people off. And they're like, why? I'm like, because I wanted to, and that's all that matters. So. And I'm curious, what was your draw to the name Emerson? My father's name is Emerson. Yeah. So I like it, but I found it in a baby name book and yeah. I just thought it was cool and strong and we call her Emmy for short. And so yeah. it was just like, I, I don't know. It just like, it felt right. Yeah. So well, yeah, which was, you know, I had got married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a little young for her. Oh, well, you know, yeah. he likes older women. <laughs> there you go. Um, so you had him and that all yes. went amazing. And then you went, you came back to the States for yeah. what ended up being a good long while. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <clears throat> it was, he was born at the end of June and then we're living in Paris. I don't know yeah. if we mentioned that, but yeah. it was Sorry. the first one we did. Um, and we were going into a second lockdown and I was like, I don't know when baby Emerson is ever going to be able to meet big Emerson. Yeah. And so we got out of here. My parents live in the woods in Michigan. And so we thought it was like early November, like maybe we'll be here till Thanksgiving. And we didn't come back to Paris until the end of May. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Crazy. It was a chunk of time. But then during that time is when you and I became yes. much closer because yes. you did one of my cohorts. Yes. Your first one. First which one. was super, super fun. So I do want to talk like about what that is because people are probably like, what the heck are you talking about? But <laughs> I think it was December. You put out an email, like, is anybody interested in like learning how to write a book proposal? And that's something yeah. that I have toyed around with for years. I mean, I remember being in high school and being like, someday I'm going to write a book, you know, but never, I, I think I, I gave myself say in high school, you were like, someday I'm going to write a book proposal. And I was like, well, I didn't know what a book proposal was in high school. <laughs> no, neither did I, but I remember wanting to write a book, but I'd always told myself I had to be at least 35 to like have enough like legitimacy in life. So yeah. I'm, you know, a couple of years past that now. <laughs> and so it just felt like, okay, I, I really want to explore what this could be like. So I just like shot off the email, like, yes, please <laughs> consider me. <laughs> and then it worked out that I got to do your very first cohort. So will you just explain to people like what the heck is a book writing or book proposal writing cohort? <laughs> yes. Well, it was this kind of thing. And we've talked about this because I am, I am just one literary agent. I have two small kids, Millie and Emerson. And, um, and I found that there were people that I really wanted to help kind of demystify this process of writing a book proposal because I can't take on every person that I want to represent, but I'm like, it's, it's just, it's, it's been too much of a, like, what's behind the curtain? Like how yeah. do you get a book deal? So I was like, I don't know, this might get me blacklisted from the publishing community, but <laughs> I feel like I just want to tell people like what happens here. And so I was working on, you know, it's a month long thing because yeah. I have worked with traditionally published authors before. And I know that if you work really hard, you can get this really great proposal together in, I didn't just slap like 30 days on it because no, yeah. do things in 30 days. I'm like, I know if you work really hard, if there's, you know, a group of people because there's that also that like synergy. I think so many writers feel Absolutely. alone in the process. And I'm like, there's going to be a synergy of, we, we use the Marco Polo app, which you and I mm -hmm. both love so yes. much. 
and it's kind of like it's like facetiming but everybody can do it on their own time so you're like recording these little video messages and i just wanted to be available to answer questions and i knew that people probably would all have similar questions or someone might ask something that you didn't hadn't even thought to ask but yeah um so there was that group mentality but i didn't want to do such a large group that people got lost in the shadows and so five felt like a really yeah. powerful intimate group um but more that i than i could typically help than when I'm just working with someone one-on-one. And so the book proposal process is something that I recommend for people, even if they're not like you and they're in high school and they're like, I'm going to write a book more of just, everybody has an idea in their head of like, you know, I wonder if this is enough for a book, or I wonder if this idea really has legs. And I think there's something really powerful in the form of a book proposal process, which takes you through like, who is your audience? what's basically your big idea what's your chapter outline who you know who are you going to market this to and um it really it's your author vision it's all this stuff that i set it up in a way one to be fun because again Mm -hmm. this process can feel daunting but one i learn best and i'm activated what's inside me is activated when i'm asked a question and so instead of just having a form of like one sentence summary paragraph summary, table of contents. I wanted to like create a conversation where I asked people questions to get really underneath their idea and help bring clarity. Um, And so that's what I created through the cohort. But then we were all having so much fun with it. And I'd written so much content for it. Yeah. And one of the big things, because I'm a traditional, like traditional publishing author, which means you get published by, you know, HarperCollins or Penguin or, you know, some, uh, a known publishing house. I also know that I tell a lot of people, hey, you know, if this isn't, if there's reasons to self-publish too, timing, you know, traditional publishing can take two years. Um, you know, if you have, if it's 1999 and you have a book on Y2K, like you need to get that puppy out. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, and sometimes for businesses, people want to write a book and you want to get it out quickly. And so I found that I was telling a lot of people to self-publish. And so as we're in this cohort and I'm working on all this content, I'm like, maybe I could get it to even more people than just the five of us here if I put it into a book form and actually learn the process of self-publishing. Yeah. Um, Because one of the reasons that I have such empathy for my authors is that I, and I talk about this in in the book that I wrote, that came out of the cohort, is that a long time ago, I did get a traditional uh, publishing deal and I wrote an entire book and I talk about in my book why then Cynthia advanced back and and didn't write it uh, or didn't publish it. I wrote it but I have empathy for that. So I wanted to have empathy for the same process of self-publishing. And it is yeah. not for the faint of heart. None of the publishing, traditional or self, yeah, not for the faint of heart. So that's why I created a cohort because we can't do this alone. <laughs> yeah, well, and I was specifically attracted to it, I think, because you know I'd been a part of a lot of like bigger groups or things where it's like, here's a bunch of information, like here's a hundred hours of videos on things about writing or whatever. And you know, I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm like, cut out all of the extra, like the just noise. get to the point. I just want to yeah. just tell me what to do. And get I get to the punchline. Get to the punchline. Oh, That's punch right. Line. <laughs> exactly right. And I just wanted to know, like, just simplify it, distill it all down for me. And then I can do that. And I yeah. think between that, having like such clear direction, 
having, like you said, that small group of women. So we were all like, it was the perfect size that you could keep up with what everybody was doing and like have, you know, be working on your own thing, but also be hearing their ideas and what they were working on and help that to like spin off and help you to think of more ideas, especially when it came to like the marketing stuff and all of that kind of thing. It was Mm -hmm. so helpful to hear the other ideas that people were coming up with and being able to like network with them and all of that, but also that accountability that like you're, (laughs) it's not so big that you're going to get lost in the shuffle and you can be like, Oh yeah, I sort of did that. Like, no, it's, you got to show up and turn your stuff in because you're actually creating a finished product at the end. And when it's over, it's over. So this is your shot to do it. And I, I needed that to be able to get this done. And it was, it was one of those things too, where I'd heard for so many years, how hard it is to write a book proposal Mm -hmm. and, but to even figure out what needed to be in it, it felt like it's hard enough (laughs) to do the writing, much less figure out what I need to be doing. Like that's a whole other project in and of itself of trying to do the research, just Googling, like, what do I do? You know? And so when you distilled it down this way, it felt like, oh, okay. Like now I know like that part of it is taking care of me. I don't have for me. I don't have to waste all of my energy trying to figure that part of it out. I can actually put the energy into the stuff that matters. Yeah. And that, that in and of itself, like if I hadn't ever had that, like somebody just gave that to me, (laughs) I don't know that I could have done it because that was the most daunting part of the whole thing. Ladies, have you or one of your kids ever had an acne breakout come at the worst possible time? I know that my poor son, when he actually had a chance to go back to school last year, was not feeling super confident because of the way his skin looked. But we are both so thankful that that is not an issue anymore because he's really gotten his skin under control. And that is why we are so excited that we get to partner with Apostrophe, the sponsor of this episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skin care company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne, and they really do work. It's amazing to see how much his skin has transformed. Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to you or your teen's unique skin. You simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history, then snap a few selfies, and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. And Apostrophe doesn't just treat acne. They also can help hit your other skincare goals, like reducing redness, wrinkles, and even dark spots. So even if acne isn't the thing that you are currently dealing with, they offer so many other services and opportunities to help whatever your skin is currently needing. We have seen such a reduction in my son's breakouts. He consistently uses the product because he sees it working, and I love to not have to battle with him about doing his skincare. It has really just been so remarkable to see how well it's worked, how he is stuck with it. And we both loved that I didn't have to take him out of school. We didn't have to go into a dermatology visit. We just did it all online. There was no embarrassment. We snapped those pictures, sent it in, and we had such a quick turnaround. Within a week, we had all of the products that he needed and his skin was already showing a difference. And I have a special deal for my audience. You can save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash livewell when you use my code 
code LIVEWELL. This code is only available to my listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash livewell and click begin visit. And then use my code LIVEWELL at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash livewell and use that code livewell to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for five dollars and i just want to thank apostrophe for clearing my son's skin and sponsoring live well anyway well, yeah. i like to do things that i would want to do and yeah. i think that's i'm like you and that i don't want to sift through i don't want to open a bunch of files and sift through yeah. something that's pre-recorded that's not to me yeah and that's why i knew five people was the max where i could be available and really give honest feedback and outside of me as the agent we also have a developmental editor and a copy yeah. editor and then your proposal gets typeset at the end and it's beautiful and it has your picture and all that yeah. but you were you were going through a ton of personal stuff during it as well <laughs> yeah. and it really like I don't know. I felt like we got close and yeah. everybody was kind of involved, not to like, it wasn't beyond like boundaries or anything like that, but no. it really, you were like, Hey, this is going on, but you still had that accountability and you still finished what you needed to finish. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, it really was, I was very impressed. I was kind of like, man, if I had what Mackenzie has going on <laughs> in my life, I would maybe quit and you didn't. And Oh. I, I was, yeah. So I, I was hanging on by the skin of my teeth this summer. So don't, don't be <laughs> impressed too quickly. I'm like, I need a cohort for the rest of my life. life. Yeah. It's just called friends. Yes, this is true. This is true. But wow. even for work now, I'm like, hmm, like I'd probably yeah. stay way more on top of everything if I had. Like, it's accountability. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. really, it's, it is, I think writing, I really did try to meet those needs of like writing is such a lonely thing. And at the end of the day, yeah, to do the writing, you have to sit down and you only you can do it. No one's going to stand behind you and type your fingers, you know? Yeah. But I think there is something really powerful about knowing that other people are expecting you to sit your butt down and, yeah. and do it. Yeah. So. Well, and even just, I mean, you are so good at giving ideas and sparking something without like giving everything, you know, like the, I was trying to figure out how to start out the book or whatever. And you just gave me like one little thing. And it was like, oh yeah, I can run with that. I can do that. And I would have never thought of that on my own. And I think a lot of times probably, I mean, I know I felt this way in the past about thinking about writing, like, oh, this is my book. This is my personal project. This it's supposed to be all my ideas, all my everything, but mm -hmm. It, just because somebody gives you an idea or sparks something doesn't mean they've taken any of that away oh, from yeah. you or like it, it was such a beneficial process for us all to be spitballing different names for our books and you know like all of that yeah. kind of thing it was so helpful to have that feedback and yeah I just think it was so much more like inspiring and helpful than I even expected it to be even though I knew it would be it was it just went to a whole other level. Oh, that means so much. Yeah. yeah. I, what you just said was really interesting because recently I had a friend and she was like, my husband has to give the best man speech and he's kind of nervous about it. I think you could probably really help him, but he's also feeling like he, if you make changes to it, it's not going to be his anymore. Oh. He has to give it, you know, because yeah. it's for his brother and he's the best man. Yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting. There is something that tells us that. And yet like, I would have to argue that the best speeches given 
probably were either fully written by somebody yeah, else, you know, all the presidents have feature writers, yeah. but also like, that's part of the creative process. Like creativity yeah. really like, you know, even famous painters, like they've picked things up from other painters. I mean, the way yeah. I live in Paris, the Louvre, like the way painters learned was you used to be able to go set up your paints in the Louvre and like copy the greats. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm the great, I'm just <laughs> saying the artistic process is like, I, I'm not someone who's like, Hey, I want to write a bunch of books, yeah. but I, I'm a heightener. I say I'm a heightener. I took a bunch of yeah. improv and there's I, something I do with active listening. And I still remember like the part of you that talked about this one, one thing stuck with me so viscerally that I was like, this needs to be the first line of your book. And I felt like that wasn't me writing your book. No. It was me taking your story and going, I know as a reader, this yeah. is going to suck the reader in because <laughs> it sucked and- me that's so helpful to hear because you can get very in your own head as Mm -hmm. the writer and not know, like, you know, which parts resonate with you as you're writing them, but you don't necessarily know exactly what is going to hit home with the reader the most. And so like having that feedback of like, Oh, that was it. Mm -hmm. And that just helps you to have more direction. And as you're moving forward, be able to like capitalize on that throughout your writing. Well, and we've talked about this with you for your writing, you know, it's like you, it's very personal. You close, you yeah. hold it close to yourself, but at the same time, as I've told you, you need to tar- start sharing it with your audience. You need to start sharing it with uh, small groups or whatever, because that's actually part of the editorial process. Yeah. Like if you're and in different mediums, I always challenge people like punchline agency. We say we're good for people who are good on the page and the stage. Yeah. Not all people who are on a stage and can communicate orally should write a book and not all people who write books should be on a stage. But yeah. I am personally drawn to communicators who can do both and you're someone that can do both. And I was like, you need to start sharing that because in different mediums than just the writing, yeah. um, because you, you get real time editorial feedback. Like if yeah. you're reading something out loud to someone and you see their eyes glaze over or you're yeah. telling the story, like you can get that feedback. And if you have honest friends or a cohort, yeah. that you know, will give you that feedback. You don't like, especially just in today's climate of publishing, as much as we want that, like romantic, I wrote this book down in a cabin by the river yeah. and then it just like went to the New York times, special, like maybe for fiction, but for most nonfiction kind of pieces or memoir, like you, the way you communicate it one way is going to be different on the page. And it's yeah. just, always going to benefit you. doesn't mean that you, you can't change your life. What happened to you happened yeah. to you, but how you tell that story, how that opening line lands or that closing line lands will get better when you let people in, but it's a vulnerable process. Yeah. I want you to read one yeah. of the chapters on the podcast today. I know I, I'm going to add it. I'm going to add it, but because it is, it's hard for me because I am a voice actor. And so even yeah. like when I was in the cohort, I wouldn't <laughs> send my written chapter to like my family or my friends. I'd be like, let me read this to you because yeah. I, I want to I want to deliver it, but then I think there's also that part of me that grew up in theater and all that. I want to hear the response. Like I yeah. want to know if the jokes are landing and I like, I want to hear the laughter. And yeah. so it's so much more fun for me as the yeah. writer when I also get to be the one who's reading it. it. Yeah. But well, I think it's like a, a comedian though, too. Like they have yeah. to test their material before oh, yeah. they're going to have their Netflix special. Like that's not their first go out. They, no. they have to like put it before audience and see like which jokes land and which jokes yeah. don't. Yeah. And you know, it's an important well, part of it. Um, what's his face? Who's the, um, he's very, 
he makes fun of himself for being so pale gaffigus yeah oh gaffigan yeah gaffigan do you know his wife is his writer like no well i mean i know they've been a team on stuff but all their material i'm pretty sure man maybe i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure they co-write everything together wow so you would you say like jim is not like the comedian you know like because she writes no it's it's collaborative and it makes helps refine the stuff here's my challenge for you because i do based on you and what you like to do you perform your writing i think you need to have someone read your writing to you oh that will because here's the thing if i if i was you let's say you're not a, a voice actor and you're not a theater background yeah and you're wanting but you're just like a prolific writer you would want to see like if somebody if you would read I would challenge you to read it out loud to see if you can tell the story orally but we know yeah. you can tell the story orally yeah now the thing is okay for the person who's reading without yeah. your inflection and your theatrical background are they catching the the jokes yeah. just from reading yeah it might be painful but it will be editorial yeah. for you that's true that's true oh now I have to talk like one of my friends who's like totally not comfortable with being recorded like I need to I need to hear them read it (laughs) oh that's Um, good yeah that's it'll be handy Marco Polo it's probably gonna happen on Marco Polo but yeah I that I think that's a really good point because I know I know how the jokes are supposed to land but it's even interesting when I'm listening to audiobooks of other authors especially if they have comedy in them like I think specifically of like Melanie Schenkel she mm-hmm. when I read it to myself I like hit the jokes you know when I'm yeah. thinking of it but she's so deadpan that yeah. she just like she'll just keep on reading like the pace doesn't change nothing she cracks the joke and it just keeps on going and I'm like <laughs> that's such a smart choice because it like doesn't even acknowledge it you have to be like keen as the listener to be like wait a minute that was hilarious oh yeah. my gosh and she just <laughs> glanced right over it. But it's it's so fun to hear like how other people would interpret it, especially yeah. even their own work to be that like yeah, mad about it and have it come off really funny. But oh, that's a good challenge. Okay. How's your writing going? <laughs> oh gosh, and you know, you know the answer to this question. <laughs> I've well, I'm I'm letting your listeners be your yeah. new cohort and your new accountability. Yes. Yeah, you're you're really throwing down the gauntlet. Well, I I need to be getting back on the bandwagon. It's been a rough what <laughs> six months, but I now that the kids are fully back in school, that is one of the goals this fall to not only be getting back into writing the book, but like getting on top of like churning out other content, written content like the newsletter and possibly blogging more, like just getting back into like that, that writing headspace. Cause yeah. it can get easy to sort of get out of it. And it's so easy to just do a live and just talk. I'm just yeah. good at talking. But that's where I think you, I yeah. mean, again, you only have so much bandwidth. Yeah. So do what you're drawn to. And if what you're drawn to is reading your writing, uh, there's one yeah. woman on Instagram I saw who just, there's no introduction, nothing. She's a writer and she just like, will start a live and she'll just read something she's written. And then she turns it off, but it like her followers have gotten to know, like, she's going to read a piece that she's written. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> All right. I will. I will be at the end of the show. You guys, she's talked me into it. I'm going to throw yes. a chapter on here. So that'll be coming at the end. <laughs> Hold her yeah. accountable to continuing to write and share. And, yeah. 
Instagram can be the new blog. I mean, you can yeah. put your writing in a post too. So. Yeah. The problem with that is I have to actually take pictures of things. <laughs> I always go to like, <laughs> I should post them like, oh, I just have like screenshots of other content that I want to remember. I haven't taken any pictures of my children or anything. <laughs> you so. could literally put, you could post images of the words. You That's have a true. You have a beautiful That's typeset true. proposal. That this is true. Yeah. I need to get on it. All right. All right. right. You've convinced me. I need to do it. Okay. You guys, I don't know if you have the same issue I do when you're packing cold lunches for your kids, but I want to put something in there that's healthy, but they actually like, and that can be really hard (laughs) to find those things that fit in both categories that they will actually eat, but I can feel good about. And then I've also recently read this study that showed a correlative link between children's ability to remain focused and their dietary fiber intake. I didn't even know that was a thing, but most kids don't usually love like a ton of vegetables before recess. So that is why I was so excited to find Uprising Food. They are this amazing company that is out to revolutionize the food system because they see how fundamentally broken it is and how we are not eating things that really nourish our bodies or our kids' bodies. And they want to provide those tasty alternatives and they are meticulously working to create the absolute best products out there on the market. I've spoken with the founder and he is so passionate that it made me be passionate about it as well. So right now, they have cracked the code on healthy bread and these great tasting high fiber, perfect for my kids, super food chips. Now, these are the thing that my kids have fallen in love with. They love both flavors. I pack them in their lunches with tuna. I know their classmates aren't super thrilled about that one or with peanut butter or whatever. And they are gobbling them up. I am so excited to find something to put in their lunches that I can actually feel really good about because they're made with superfood ingredients like almonds, MCT oil, apple cider vinegar, egg whites, psyllium husk, and olive oil. They were made by amazing bakers who really get the idea of not just having healthy food, but having food that actually tastes delicious so we will actually eat it and our kids will too. So if you want to bring this revolution to your children's lunchbox like I have to mine, then Uprising is offering my listeners $10 off the starter bundle. That includes two superfood cubes, that's their bread, and four packs of freedom chips to try. So go to uprisingfood.com slash live well, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's U-P-R-I-S-I-N-G food.com slash live well to get $10 off your first purchase of the starter bundle. And I just want to thank Uprising Food for creating amazing products. I can't wait to see what you bring in the future and for sponsoring Live Well Anyway. (laughs) Okay, well, I want people to go out and find your book. I mean, I just think there's this is the best resource I've seen if they are at all interested and if they sign up for your newsletter, then they'll know if you're coming out with more cohorts and that sort of thing too, right? Yeah. And I usually, I mean, we were, we only had the bandwidth to do one core cohort this fall. So I literally yeah. just asked you cohort members, like, Hey, if you know of someone, and then I did one little story. And so we're full for the fall Okay, and have some people that are like, but if you do a spring one, yeah. Um, so yeah, I usually kind of, I'll announce it on my personal Instagram. That's kind of okay. where I connect with people and, um, which is just my name, Joy Egrich, no married last name. I mean, I have a married last name, <laughs> yeah. but it's my old yeah. school. Um, and 
um, yeah, the newsletter, the punchline agency newsletter. Um, and then they're in the book, there's an email address that you can actually, after you go through the book, if you want, the book is the cohort in yeah. the book form. Yeah. But as you said, the, the reason people pay to do the cohort, yeah. the book is much cheaper, yes. <laughs> much, much cheaper. <laughs> yes, it is. But the reason that people do the cohort is for everything we talked about. The yeah. real, like, if you want a human, you want a human agent, a human editor, um, and yeah. you want something physically, tangibly done. Mm-hmm. Um, and the accountability and like, and the was, friendship was worth. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. totally worth it. Totally yeah. worth it. And, but I, I do want to mention one last thing before we go very yeah. quickly, you sent out the books and I got it. And I was so excited. You sent two books and you said, go put one of these yeah. books in the bestseller section at a store. <laughs> and I don't know how you, you did it. That. I did it. I felt so scandalous, but I also like, I was so annoyed that I didn't have like a camera set up or something and like get to see what ended up happening to the book. Like I, I want know, to I know. know, but I did it in target. Yeah. It was so fun. You were amazing. And I want to tell you, so I, I had like a little bookmark that was like, Hey, this is from, and then like, you could fill in your name and this book isn't currently being carried in target or whatever store person chose. Um, but we think it should be. So this copy is free for you and whatever. Um, I did it too in target and I was so nervous. (laughs) I was like, come get me. Yes. I want to tell you this should pat yourself on the back. I only did that. I only sent the two copies uh, with the, with the, um, bookmark to leave it somewhere to people that I was like, I bet they'll do this. (laughs) You were one of them. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) I was like, Ooh, this sounds scandalous, but so much fun. I'm totally going to do it. So yeah, I did it. It was a blast. And my kids were like, what are you doing? (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Mommy I just, might I wanna... just have to go to Target jail but... yes. <laughs> for leaving something extra there, not stealing yeah. something, but actually leaving extra. I wanted like, though, like a, a camera on the cashier when they would like yeah. try to ring up the book. Like if the person just didn't notice that it was a free copy and like just the mad confusion that that would I know. cause. Well, and even if they would have tried to look up the ISBN number, we had this whole whole mess up where we had to end up having two different ISBN numbers. Oh my so goodness. those copies were the advanced copies that had a bunch yeah. of errors in them anyway. So it's like, they would not have been able to <laughs> yeah. find that book. They're like, what is this? Yeah. yeah. That's hilarious. Well, well, I'm glad you liked it. I, I really, did. I'm so glad you're part of the cohort. You are a great writer. I'm excited for your audience to hear more of your writing oh. and cheer you on as you Thank go you. through this process. Cause as we've said, it's not for the faint of heart. No, but no. If, if you have an idea in your head, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be like we said, you in high school being like, I'm going to write yeah. a book. Yeah. But the process of the proposal yeah. is so important because it helps bring clarity to anything you're trying to communicate. Yeah. Um, it really makes you get into the, the, you know, if you're writing a speech or whatever, it makes you get into the mindset of your audience. It makes you ask yourself, why me? Why am I communicating this? Yeah. And then I think for some people, it just helps them finally articulate something um, in a clear way. And also if maybe you thought it was a book and then you're like, actually, this is just, this is just a, a journal. Yeah. Or, yeah. This is just, you know, whatever it is. And some people need to get there. Like the marketing side of writing a book these days isn't for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I encourage people, like, if you want to write a legacy piece for your family, like there's still like, that's important. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I, I do get a little morbid in the book. I'm like, is there a world in which you'd be on your deathbed and regret having actually 
because there's so many people that are like, I'm going to write a book someday. I'm going to write a book someday. Yeah. And like, don't actually ever take any practical steps. Yeah. And so my hope is that this is in a fun, lighthearted way of going, take your first steps. I know you can do it because yeah. I've taken people through this process and they can. Yeah. And it feels like so repeatable now that I've done it. I'm like, okay, whatever other ideas I yeah. have, if I can just filter them through this funnel of, okay, is this a worthwhile idea? I just think that it's such a helpful process for any content that you're trying to develop. So well, thank you. Well done. I'm so excited to see just like everything that punchline continues to do in the future and, and hopefully work with you more. So. Yeah. Well, and, and I do want to just add like the thing that I'm actually the most excited about with this book is that I wrote a second book. Oh, which was a kid's book. Oh yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And it's called Bernard the bag. It wasn't written by me actually. It was written by Bernard the baguette. And, <laughs> and it's short. It's like, I think 40 pages or something and kind of like a coloring book. And there there's uh, my friend, Kristen did the illustrations. She's amazing. So cute. Um, yeah. <clears throat> But it's for kids in the foster care system, uh, this organization uh, called Every Child. And there's, they have these welcome boxes for kids who are sitting in DHS offices and mm. are having to sit with a caseworker, hearing that caseworker call and be like, can you take them? No. Can you take them? No. And so we're just trying to create something that will take them out of that headspace. Yeah. And it's three prompts that vary in kind of difficulty level um, mm -hmm. because kids in the system are from you know all yeah. ages. Um, but it takes them through cr the creative writing process, um, memoir writing and journalism. Wow. And it just does kind of what our cohort did. It gives yeah. them ask them questions and it just incrementally takes them through to the point where they're like, oh, I understand this style of writing. And it, it basically is a coloring book as well. So anyways, Fun. for every copy of Get to the Publishing Punchline that's ordered, mm -hmm. a copy of Bernard the Baguette uh, goes to every child. That's awesome. What a cool idea. Very, very cool. Okay. Well, I wish we would have had Thanks more time. Chatting. We could have gotten into so much stuff, but it has been so worth it to have you here for this. And now it forces me to have to tack I on know. some of my <laughs> stuff at the end of Maybe the show. Maybe two chapters. So, who knows? Maybe who two. Knows? Yeah. Hey, or you go, this could be something <laughs> you could read one of your chapters and you could read a chapter from my book and then I could hear and see it. You're giving your, there you go. If you want. All right. Uh, I will take it. I will listen and see if it lands what I intended yes. for or whatever. Yes. Just that I, that's there. a fabulous. See, you're just <laughs> full of ideas. I love it. Yeah. We're good. We, we have yes. good synergy. Yes, we do. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again, Joy. Thank you for having me. Bye. Oh, you guys, I just love Joy. She is so much fun. She's so real and funny. I feel like we have just like gotten each other since we very first met. I've had so much fun having her on the podcast both times. If you haven't listened to the first episode, it is back, I believe, in May of 2020 that we had that episode go out. It was right before she had her baby boy, Emerson, and it was just such a fun conversation. She's a hoot. And if you want to be able to to 
follow her on Instagram, which believe me, you do, because hello, she's living in Paris and she has the most entertaining kids and she does their voices and they have croissant Wednesday and you get to like see Paris and it's it's just unmatched. You've got to go follow her over there. If you want links to any of that stuff, then just hop over to our show notes, which you can find in whatever app you are listening to the podcast on. But you can also go to MackenzieCoppa.com, click on podcast. You'll find all the goods there from all of our episodes, including links to any of our affiliates, all of our sponsors, and to Amazon. In fact, if you just go to MackenzieCoppa.com slash Amazon, it will take you to all of my curated lists of everything that I talk about. So we've got a list all about Stress Be Gone, all the products that I am currently using to help me manage my stress. And then we've got one for wellness. We're coming into that season where kids are getting colds and all that kind of stuff. I've got all of the suggestions of the products that my family uses on there. I've got a new feminine care one that's called Lady Parts because as I mentioned, I did that episode in Patreon where I talked about all of my favorite feminine products. I've got them all linked up there in Amazon, plus so many other lists of things that can really help you out. So you can head over there, MackenzieCoppa.com slash Amazon. It gives us a little bit of credit to keep the show moving so you get to actually help support the show without spending any more money than you otherwise would. And, you know, believe it or not, we are coming into that holiday season. I know you probably want to slap me for mentioning it, but I know of people who are already thinking about Christmas presents. And if you are doing any of that buying through Amazon, I would just so appreciate it if you use that link to show a little support this way. It makes a big difference for us, and I just so appreciate it. Okay, but now we have to get down to the scary part, you guys. (laughs) The joy put me up to... I can't end this episode without reading these chapters. So I am going to read you a chapter from my book, and then I am going to read you a chapter from Joy's book. Uh, The chapter I'm reading you from my book is all about some of my dating experiences. So here we go. It is called, There Are No Suitable Matches in Your Area. From the time I fled, I always knew that just because I'd had a bad relationship experience didn't mean I couldn't have a good one. Eventually, I hoped to find someone who could not only be kind and fun and loving to me, but show my kids all those things as well. I wanted my kids to know what a healthy, supportive relationship looked like. So even though I knew it was still in the distant future, I did let myself daydream from time to time, and the rest of the time I just occupied myself with watching Outlander. Just kidding. Not really. Anyway, about two months after I left, I made my list. You know the type, the kind that holds all your hopes and dreams of what you're looking for in a man. I called it my someday, someday, maybe list. It included everything from my must-haves to the icing on the cake kinds of things. I figured if I was dreaming that I might as well wish for great arms and a love of reading. I remember announcing the list to my therapist one day during a counseling session. She sat quietly listening to me spout off things like, I would really like for him to be kind, and I don't want someone who yells at me. Or the real gem, I don't want him to have health issues that he can possibly blame on me, such as his weight. When I looked up, she had a quizzical expression on her face and asked, You're looking for a healthy, balanced, good guy, right? Of course, I responded. 
Well, wouldn't most of those things just be a given? If you entered a relationship with someone who is healthy and stable, you wouldn't have to worry about extreme circumstances like them blaming you for gaining weight. It sounds like you're just looking for someone who is normal. Oh, right. Normal. I forgot there was such a thing. As I mentioned before, though, I did have a few specifics that I thought might be nice or fun. I mean, it would be helpful if he was handy and maybe wouldn't mind watching a musical from time to time. I decided to get my dear friend Rebecca in on the conversation as I continued to revise the list. By the time I was finished, she declared that she knew someone who fit my criteria to a T. He was handsome and handy and even loved Phantom of the Opera. It was simply meant to be that I marry her older and incredibly single brother. Of course, a slew of pictures immediately followed, and I agreed he was handsome and had nice arms. There was even a picture of him nursing a baby squirrel back to health. What woman wouldn't fall for a man who was willing to bottle feed a baby squirrel around the clock? I later found out that squirrel didn't make it, but that was really beside the point. I had a real live flesh and blood man with solid character qualities that I could fawn over for the ensuing lonely years. Plus, it worked out perfectly that he lived across the country and had no idea I existed because I wasn't actually divorced yet and wouldn't be for quite some time. No harm, no foul. Rebecca would send me secret Marco Polo videos of him at all their family gatherings. We nicknamed him Raul, phantom reference, and talked about him constantly. It was just enough to keep hope alive during those years leading up to the actual finalization of the divorce. Side note, I did eventually meet him on that trip I made to Arkansas. I had actually planned out every word that I would say to him to try to slyly engage him in conversation about Phantom of the Opera slick. In the end, I just confused him and haven't seen him since. But hey, he was fun to hope for while I needed something to look forward to. I will freely admit that the years I spent single and not pursuing anything with anyone, though vitally important for me to figure out who I was and get my stuff together, were also a little demoralizing. I felt so certain that I was past my prime and no reasonable man would even think twice about dating a woman with four children, not to mention the fact that my body had also managed to produce those four children. And while I know how to dress to feel confident in my skin below the surface, things are stretched and dimpled in ways I'd rather not mention. The thought of anyone being interested in me, especially a great guy, felt unrealistic. One day, however, my mom and I were downtown at the big three-on-three basketball tournament that our city hosts every year. All sorts of vendors lined the streets, and we were asked at one booth if we would participate in a study from Microsoft to help with the new software they were developing that required video to be taken of us. We figured, why not, and signed the release forms. A few days later, a message showed up in my Instagram DMs from a guy who wondered if I had any good suggestions for kids' activities in the area. He had recently been granted custody of his nephew and was looking to get him involved in sports and summer camps. Okay, that's great, but odd. So, of course, I went to his feed and figured out he was the guy from the Microsoft booth. He had taken my name off the release form and looked me up. Okay. Now, I know that should have seemed really weird and possibly a red flag, but at the time, I had not received interest from anyone in actual years, and I was beyond thrilled to receive a little bit of organic attention. Look at me finding a guy who was interested in me out in the world. My friends and I quickly dubbed him Mr. Muscles in reference to the numerous shirtless photos on his IG. Mackenzie, why are you not seeing any red flags here? And I kept chatting it up. 
We continued to message for a couple of weeks and then decided to get together in person. He said he liked to be active and found getting together for coffee or a meal to be a waste of time. Hi, another red flag. So we opted to do yoga in a local park. I promptly went and bought the cutest yoga outfit I could find and prepared for some light stretching, but mostly conversation. When I arrived at the park we had decided on, he met me at my van, which he promptly made derogatory comments about. Hey, that's my horrible blue mom van. I'm the only one who gets to say mean things about her. I noticed that he had brought his five-year-old nephew with him, which I found to be an interesting choice, but again tried to brush off. He laid out a couple of yoga mats about 50 feet from a large birthday party that was being held in the park and started stretching. I felt a little clueless about what to do, but sat down and tried to focus on getting to know him a little more. It was then that he informed me what type of yoga he actually had in mind. Acro yoga. If you aren't familiar with acro yoga, it involves one person lying on their back and hoisting the other person into the air in a series of complicated poses. Think circus tricks. I should have walked away, right? I should have let this be the last straw. But did I? No. My competitive and performative natures collided, and suddenly I found myself dangling upside down, suspended by his feet, while partygoers sang happy birthday to a one-year-old at the nearby picnic tables. For shame. After I had displayed some impressive skills that I wasn't even aware I was capable of, he finally agreed to just talk for a bit. However, the painful and forced conversation that followed not only revealed that he was six years younger than me, but that his depth as a person was actually really quite shallow, and his inflated self-image matched exactly with all those shirtless Instagram photos. Shocker. To wrap it all up, he farted. What's worse is that he didn't even seem to care. It was at that point that I finally opted to head out. I had haagen waiting for me at home, so I really did need to skedaddle. We agreed to just be friends, and I fully anticipated not hearing from him again. Imagine my shock when about a week later he contacted me to let me know that he had a friend who he wanted to set me up on a blind date with. He said he thought we had a ton in common and would really enjoy each other. This guy, let's call him Jim Bob, he had been through a hard divorce too and was waiting through single fatherhood. He was just sure it was a match made in heaven. I figured, what have I got to lose, and agreed to meet the guy for coffee. Well, it turns out I had my time and sanity to lose, and I promptly did so on that coffee date. As soon as I walked up, he shook my hand, sat down, and proceeded to ask me what my current business expansion goals were. I kid you not. The rest of the interview, I mean date, followed suit. Question after question on what my five-year plan was and what personal life rules I had decided to live by. He recited for me the top five character qualities he was currently instilling into his six children, complete with an acronym and catchy mantra, and by that I mean very not catchy. He had them chant it every morning before leaving the house. It was painful. And that isn't even mentioning the fact that he stood eye level with me. I had been duped into believing he was near six foot. The only way that would have been remotely true is if he had been standing on his chair. But that was really of no consequence, because his oppressive personality alone was enough to make me want to extract myself from the situation as fast as humanly possible. Eventually, he concluded his lecture on parenting and business practices and informed me that he very much enjoyed my company and would like to see me again as soon as possible. To which I fiend an excuse of not really being sure if I was quite ready to re-enter the dating pool after all and promptly ran from the building. 
Mr. Muscles texted me after the disaster to ask how it had gone. I asked him if his sole criteria in setting us up had been the facts that we both had difficult divorces and numerous kids. Indeed, that was all. How I hadn't assumed that his Yenta capabilities would be subpar as a real head-scratcher. I mean, between the gas passing and date gymnastics, he certainly seemed to be incredibly in tune with what I was into. If I were texting, this is where I would insert the hand-on-face emoji. After I announced that I had found him completely untrustworthy and would never take his advice on anything ever again, so help me, the conversation proceeded as follows. So, you're not interested in seeing Jim Bob again? No. No, I am not. I believe I've made that quite clear. Well, do you want to go salsa dancing with me tonight, then? Me, picking my jaw up off the floor. Um, no, I think I'm going to have to pass on that. Okay, well, what about the two of us going on a camping trip together this weekend? Me, looking around to see if I was being punked. Uh, yeah, that's a no as well. You know, it just really feels like we're looking for very different things, but I hope you find someone else to dance and camp with. So, that's a no? At this point, it was all I could do to not whip out my best Chris Tucker impression from Rush Hour when he's talking to Jackie Chan and scream, Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Instead, I mustered incredible restraint and simply said, Correct. That's a no. Good luck. We parted ways, and I quickly blocked his number. Those two made me seriously begin to question just how likely it would be to find a normal good guy. Were they but a myth? The stuff of legends akin to Bigfoot and unicorns? Months passed, and eventually I decided that I was ready to get a little bit more serious about looking for someone. I realized that the likelihood of finding a man in the wild was probably not very high for me, given the fact that I worked from home and a global pandemic was quickly descending on our world. So I turned to the only real viable, though cringeworthy option, dating apps. It pains me to say those words, but apparently that's how the youngins do it these days. I was very selective about which apps I would use and opted for the not-mincing-words approach to writing my profile. I wasn't there to waste anyone's time, and I certainly didn't need mine wasted, so I just spelled it all out. Mom. Businesswoman. Christian. I think that humor, laughter, and looking for beauty are essential pieces of making the most of life. I very much have my act together and know where I'm going, looking for someone similar in that regard who can also be a supportive best friend and partner. If you intend to message me, then you're going to want to read this part first. If any of the following applies to you, then you need not apply. 1. Have any profile photos with another woman very clearly cut out of the picture. 2. Have any profile photos containing drugs, alcohol, or wildlife you have recently killed. 3. Have a profile photo in which the angle of the camera very clearly shoots up your nose. It's 2020, boys. Let's learn how to take a selfie. 4 are currently married, in a relationship, or have any women pregnant. Sad but true reality that this one needed to be added. 5. Want more babies. Babies are not a part of my future. Lastly, if you feel the need to refer to me as baby, hottie, sexy, or anything else derogatory or ridiculous in your initial message to me, I will not even bother to respond. If you've made it this far and none of the above applies to you, awesome! Let's chat. As you can tell from this sort of bio, I did a lot of weeding out right off the bat. That little gem of prose was enough to fend off many would-be creepers. Those who did message me with a, hey baby, were promptly blocked, but typically not until after I responded with a quick note of, 
Didn't bother to read my profile, huh? A little smug, I realize, but someone's got to teach him. More often than not, I would swipe through all the possible contenders only to arrive at a screen that read, There are currently no suitable matches in your area. Check back soon. During the course of the year and a half I was on the apps, I only went on a handful of dates. Try to hide your surprise. I was ruthlessly picky, and I really don't have a problem with that. I wasn't trying to serial date. I was looking for a potential match. Most of the guys I went out with were nice enough, but there just wasn't that spark. There was the sweet Sicilian running for local office who took me to hear live music, except there wasn't any that night. Poor planning on his part. Also, come to find out, not only did he not show up at his listed height, I find they rarely do, but his ex-wife also still slept at his house, supposedly in his son's bedroom, three nights a week. So that was suspect. Now, since our kids just so happen to attend the same school, I get the distinct pleasure of seeing him every single day at school pickup and pretending I don't recognize him. It's easier with a mask, but I know he spotted me. Just keep your head down, Mackenzie. Fiend amnesia. There was the tall, artsy tech guy who wanted us to talk about our feelings until all the breath was sucked out of our bodies. But how do you feel about this sushi? What did you learn about your feelings while you were pumping gas? Let me take a moment to breathe deeply and decide how I feel about that. After a date with him, in which I literally walked seven miles around our city in high-heeled boots, yet another guy who insisted we be active the whole stinking time, He let me know he had also been seeing someone else and had decided to give it a real shot with her. I agreed that was a good choice while simultaneously looking into what it would take to get a hip replacement at the age of 35 thanks to that glorious stroll. He then followed it up with, but hey, if it doesn't work out with her, we could give it another shot. Um, no, thank you. However, I did notice a few months later that he was back on the apps. I wonder how he feels about that. By this point, I had decided to create a standard date to simplify the whole first meeting process with potential new prospects, few as they were. We would meet for sushi at a restaurant in my parents' downtown neighborhood. It was in a busy location with lots of shops and outdoor scenery that made it easy to either keep things rolling for a bit if it was going well or make a quick escape if not. The guys were none the wiser and it made me feel more comfortable knowing the turf. And this is where I met up with the single dad of three who seemed nice enough while texting, but upon actually meeting turned out to have all of the conversational skills of a wet rag. He mostly stared at me, and by that I mean awkwardly ogled me. My mom and her neighbor actually spied on me through the windows of the restaurant during the date. As soon as she saw the expression on my face, she turned to her neighbor and said, oh, this isn't going well. After dinner, he wanted to go across the street for ice cream. I dumbly agreed, feeling a little trapped and also not being able to deny my love for ice cream. That's my true love affair. I sat down on the bench seat at the table, assuming he'd sit across from me in the chair. Instead, he sat right next to me. I gingerly scooted over and literally placed my purse in between us. My mom witnessed this little move as well, laughing outside the ice cream shop's windows. Yes, she and her neighbor had followed me across the street because apparently she moonlights as an international spy. I scarfed down my ice cream as quickly as I safely could and declared it was time for me to head home. He awkwardly gave me a hug outside and I ducked away. I then opted to meet up with my parents and their neighbors for the rest of the evening and imagine the horror that registered on my face when in the middle of recounting the play-by-play of that painful date, I received the following text. I had such a great time with you tonight. I almost kissed you, but decided that we'll really just have to get after it next time. I immediately panicked and began to troubleshoot what in the world I would have done if that had actually happened. Could I have ducked, put my hand over my mouth, 
burped loudly, which I have never, ever done before, I think I would have been willing to have done just about anything to avoid that happening. I was in such shock that I just flat out didn't respond. I had no idea what to say. He wasn't a bad guy, but just no. The next day, he texted again. I think I might have freaked you out with that kissing text. You think, Sherlock? I believe my response was something along the lines of my old standby. I think we're just looking for different things. Next, there was the worship leader, who was all charm. He said all the right things. He promised the moon. He was the first guy who went beyond just one or two dates. I actually began considering the possibility of a future with him. After all, he told me he was quite sure we would have one. Well, apparently, he was imagining futures with a lot of other women at the same time as well. Imagine my shock five weeks in when he let me know he needed to just spend some time working on himself because he had a baby on the way with a woman almost half his age. She was due in a month. I told him he was a liar for all the things he'd said. He assured me he was not because all of the things he said were true at the time. Guess what, folks? That means they absolutely were not true ever. The whirlwind with you, as my friends and I not so affectionately dubbed him afterward, came to an abrupt end, thankfully. We also later found out that the same weekend his baby was due, he married a different woman who was now also pregnant with his baby, dodged a huge bullet there. That experience did make me take another step back, however. How had I so easily fallen for all those smooth words? I was going to have to be a little bit more cognizant of making sure I didn't fall too quickly for some fool in the future. I needed to be leery of men who were making promises too quickly. I couldn't afford to be charmed. So when a couple of weeks later, I found myself on a date with a bodybuilder we nicknamed the Neanderthal, I didn't waste time deciding that this was not the path I wanted to take. He had mentioned he was a widower. What he hadn't mentioned was that he was also freshly off a second marriage. I excused myself from that one after a short 45 minutes. Then there came the three Ricks. All at the same time, I happened to have three different guys by the name of Rick reach out to me. My friends and I gave them alternate monikers so we could keep them straight. There was American History Rick, two guesses as to what he was passionate about, Middle School Rick, a friend from school who slid into my DMs 20 years later rather than through a dating app, and Tall, Dark, and Handsome Rick, fairly self-explanatory. After American History Rick bored me to death one evening reliving a Civil War documentary, I mean, I consider myself a bit of a history buff, but even this was too much, and suggested we go on an outlandish date to a resort, I cut him loose before we ever met. It quickly became clear that not only had middle school Rick and I not had much in common all those years ago, but also still didn't to this day, and the conversation faded. Tall, dark, and handsome Rick went out for an actual go at one of my standard dates, and we had a lot of fun. He was intelligent and funny, but he lived just over the state line, and the distance, mixed with us both having kids, made it hard to actually make seeing each other very often possible. As it stands now, I've been taking a break from the apps for a while. They can just be so daunting and artificial. However, a handsome single dad did recently move into my neighborhood, and I may have referred to him on Instagram a time or two as hot neighbor. Yes, I'm fully aware of the double standard this presents, but I justify it by the fact that I'm not calling him that to his face. Yet. 
Our kids have become friends, and occasionally he even holds neighborhood Zumba classes. Yes, you read that right. He's a Zumba instructor, and it's fabulous. So for now, I'm just training my children to talk loudly about the wonderful qualities of their mother whenever they are playing near his house, and I'm aiming to Zumba my way straight into his heart. Let it simmer. When I left, as unlikely as I thought the whole idea of finding a man to be, I think I still had it in the back of my mind that it surely wouldn't take that long to find my person. I read stories of women who didn't get married for five whole years after their marriages ended, and that sounded like an eternity to me. Now, all these years down the line, I get it. I realize why it's not fast, and even why it shouldn't be. For once in my life, I have to slow down and let this area of my life play out unrushed. Don't get me wrong. It can be painful and lonely. I want the pretty little bow, tying this story up with a fairy tale ending, but that just hasn't happened yet. But after each date and each conversation, I've been able to walk away and feel like I've learned something. I know so much more about myself and what I'm looking for now, and those are lessons I wouldn't trade for the world. What's more is that I've learned to enjoy my freedom, my independence. I get antsy for human connection, as any extrovert does, but I've also learned to enjoy my own company and take advantage of the downtime when it's just me, something I had never actually experienced in adulthood. Do I want to be in a relationship? Of course. But I'm also doing just fine on my own. I cautiously hope that a great guy is out there for me and my kids, but until that day possibly comes, I will continue to fill my life with the friends and family who ride or die with me every single day. There may not be any suitable matches in my area today, but you just never know when that tide will turn. And when I think the future looks bleak and lonely, I've got those friends and family there to remind me that love is worth the risk to hope for. And when I don't believe it, or even refuse to, they hold that hope for me. So here's to second chances. May they be brilliant and beautiful and filled with as few bad dates as possible. Okay, so that's the end of that chapter. I'm very curious to hear what you guys think. Please get a hold of me on Instagram at Mackenzie Coppa if you have any any input on that chapter. And of course, this chapter was obviously written before Hot Neighbor became Hot Boyfriend. So I did want to clarify if you're feeling confused at the end of that chapter. This was written quite a while ago. And now obviously Hot Boyfriend and I are in a very different place and are very much involved in each other's lives and I love every minute of it. So yeah, that's that's the sneaky little update there. I may have to revise the chapter before it goes to publish someday. All right, now I know this episode is getting insanely long, but hopefully you're enjoying it. And we are going to read a chapter from Get to the Publishing Punchline, a fun and slightly aggressive 30-day guide to get your book ready for the world by Joy Agrich Reed. We aren't all Hemingway, a schedule that works for you. As I mentioned before, I currently live in Paris. Yes, France. I have gotten by the last four years on a steady diet of warm baguettes with butter churned by the hands of a wrinkled old Frenchman named Jean-Marc, and I have no regrets. When my husband and I were dating, I found out that he worked for a company whose parent company was headquartered in Paris. 
I said with all the shallowness I could muster, get a job transfer to Paris and I'll marry you. Thankfully, I married him before Paris was reality for both of us, and now we can live in a happy marriage where my motives are not called into question. Although I did demand that he grow a beard because I love beards and now he hasn't shaved in five years. The shallowness lives on. After tying the knot and buying and furnishing our first home in America, Matt noticed a position open in the Paris office that was a perfect fit and career move for him. Next thing we knew, we were selling all our new furnishings, handing the keys of our dream home off to renters, and setting up as newlyweds in Paris. Four years and two babies later, we talk about that first year in Paris and how much we crammed into our short pre-diaper time. We were like tourists on speed that year. When you get married later in life like we did and then calculate all the time your friends who got married in their 20s had together before having kids, we knew whatever way we did the math, we would never catch up to the same amount of just the two of us time many of our friends had before welcoming petite bebés into the world. And when those same friends were shipping their kids off to college, we'd just be starting parent-teacher conferences while flashing our AARP cards. We settled on one year, just the two of us tackling Paris together with warm baguettes and butter in hand. When we think back to that first year in Paris, we both agree that one of our favorite memories was taking Hemingway's A Movable Feast with us to restaurants, park benches, and wherever we had a moment to read to each other about his life in Paris. It was as romantic as you'd imagine. Mostly because when comparing yourself to Hemingway's marriages, it can be wildly encouraging for two newlyweds that we were probably going to do better by the sheer fact that neither one of us had a big problem with going to the horse tracks and gambling away our income. On one of our weekend adventures, we went to Brasserie Lip, a cafe where Hemingway would drink beer and write. The aesthetics of the restaurant, more than any of the other writing haunts, have remained largely untouched. We drank an overpriced beer and imagined him sitting in the booth with his pencil and pad writing stories of war and rivers in Michigan. We can often romanticize and idolize what writing should look like, especially if we compare ourselves to one of the greats. But from what I gather, while he was writing what would become canonical novels and short stories, Hemingway was often pretty buzzed, lived from paycheck to paycheck, and was frequently unfaithful to his wife. You might not have the brasserie lip in Saint-Germain to fuel your creativity, and cheap wine might make you sleepy, but I would encourage you to find a creative space that you find most conducive to writing. Get that space as ready as possible so that when you're there, you feel like you can breathe, think, and write without distraction. If it's in your home and you have kids, I also strongly suggest making a sign for the door that has thinly veiled threats about entering when you're writing, or else. Some of you might find that you need your writing space to change. You may thrive as you type among the hum of a busy coffee shop, a hipster-loving co-working space, or the floor in the historical fiction aisle of your local library. If you aren't sure how you write best, take one week to write in a consistent spot you've set up in your home and take another week and try several different locations. You'll figure out what environment you are most able to focus. Learning where you work best is important, but another crucial piece to writing is knowing when you best work. While Hemingway is most immortalized as writing and drinking from what are now landmark stops in Paris for literary lovers, from the sounds of it, Hemingway was still quite disciplined in writing when he was sharp in the morning. When I am writing on a book or a story, I write every morning as soon after first light as possible. There is no one to disturb you and it is cool or cold and you come to your work and warm as you write. You read what you have written and as you always stop when you know what is going to happen next, you go on from there. You write until you come to a place where you still have your juice and know what will happen next. You have started at 6 in the morning, say, and may go on until noon or be through before that. Looks like Hemingway and I have more than just living in Paris in common. Mornings have always been the best writing time for me. 
If I was to write at night, you'd find me coming to three hours later with HJKL keys indented on my right cheek. But this might not be you. One of my authors, Elizabeth Knox, founder of MatchPace, a consulting firm that helps companies maximize effectiveness, explains in her forthcoming book why understanding individual employees' chronotypes and allowing them to work accordingly will benefit the whole company. Chronotypes are the emotional and behavioral patterns associated with a person's internal clock, but these aren't set in stone. Research indicates that your chronotype can change over the various seasons of your life. While you may have been able to focus late into the evening at one time of your life, like those all-nighters you pulled in college, new responsibilities and life circumstances may now require an adjusted sleep-wake pattern shifting your peak focus period. It is important to structure your day to ensure you are able to give your personal and professional best to the things most important to you. Structuring your workday for maximum effectiveness requires 1. Planning how you'll spend your time and attention, and 2. Using your peak performance times to your advantage. Sometimes we try to fit our writing habits into what Hemingway or our favorite author, who wrote this really great book on how to write a book proposal, cough, cough, does, instead of seeing their habits as just one method to try. Don't force something that isn't you or your chronotype. I will often hear people say that you just have to write something every day. One hour, two hours a day, just sit down to write, they say. Again, that's well-intentioned and works for some people, but not for all. When I was working on my book, I had to, as I mentioned, do writing retreats with big chunks of writing, not little bits every day. Even now, with this book, I'm writing on a day when I turned my email off, flipped my phone over, for the most part, and blocked off 8 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. to just write. I write for 30 to 60 minutes at a time, take a 10-minute break, and get back to it. Just like with your writing space, you have to try a few different methods. Pay attention to your productivity and what makes writing most enjoyable for you. Hey, if it's cheap wine and writing after a night of betting on horse races, then I guess that works for you. But here's the thing that Hemingway did that many of us need reminding of. He wrote and wrote and made a practice of continuing to write even when he thought what he was writing wasn't good. Don't let your fears or hesitations about your writing keep you from finding the time and place that's best for you. Then keep returning to it over and over until the book is finished. All right, you guys, that's it. If you want more from Get to the Publishing Punchline, a fun and slightly aggressive 30-day guide to get your book ready for the world by Joy Agrich Reed, then you're going to want to head over to the show notes for this episode to find the link and get it from Amazon. Thank you guys so much for hanging in there with me today for this incredibly long episode. I hope you found it enjoyable and I would absolutely love your feedback. So find me on Instagram at Mackenzie Coppa. I hope to hear from you soon. And until next week, ladies, go be bold and gracious. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 